From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, perspective on what the turmoil in U.S. banks means for you. What kind of risk factors do banks here in Colorado face compared to the ones that have already shut down? Then, the solutions for homelessness are often as varied as the reasons people become unhoused in the first place. Sometimes getting back on your feet can begin with a safe place to park. They feel like they're part of a community, you know, which uh, helps when you feel like you're an outcast from society for a while to know that you're accepted somewhere, that you're not the only one experiencing that kind of problem. And later, avalanches have killed more people in Colorado this winter than any other state. We hear why just having a transceiver isn't enough. CPR's financial backbone is built with support from the community. There are many different kinds of gifts that make an impact, including gifts of real estate. You can donate real estate that is owned outright or real estate with an existing mortgage, and the property can be located anywhere in the U.S. Your generosity will support the news and music you value. Explore the benefits of donating a gift of real estate on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. By now, you've probably heard about all of the turmoil going on with the U.S. banks. But what does it mean for you? Tatiana Bailey is an economist who runs data-driven economic strategies in Colorado Springs. She also used to head the Economic Forum at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. She joins us now to put this issue into perspective for us all. Hi, Tatiana. Hi, Chandra. So the really big banks in the U.S. don't seem to be under any threat right now. But if I bank with, say, a local bank here in Colorado or a regional bank, should I be worried? Well, I think um, in order to understand uh, how to answer that question, I think it's good to know the basics of what happened. So I'll give you the quick cliff notes, okay, because that'll help inform what's going on with smaller regional banks as a whole. So let's just say when a person a person deposits their money into a bank, and let's just say $100 for the sake of simplicity in, in a savings account, the bank pays you, uh, their new customer, a small amount of interest for the privilege of holding your money, right? Mm-hmm. But the bank doesn't just let the money sit there. It has to invest that money in order to pay its workers and the building and to pay the interest it promised you. And of course, this is true for all the depositors. But then the bank has to decide how to invest that money that the public has given it in order to help the money grow in order to make a profit. And this is actually a really good thing um, that economists talk a lot about. The bank lends money to people to start businesses or expand businesses. It gives good customers money to buy houses and cars. And this is a stimulant to the economy in terms of jobs and growth and business activity. So maybe that original $100 you deposited becomes like $120. So that's really good. This all works well as long as the bank is making good investment decisions, okay? And this is where SVB comes in. 
So typically, banks diversify their investments so that they can spread their risk. Um, and they have to keep a certain amount of money that they are holding in cash or liquid assets, so assets that can be, you know, quickly converted to cash. Um, and and that's really, you know, a balance that they have to strike. Now, SVB. Uh, SVB was the largest, 16th largest bank in the U.S., but still a regional bank. But I think it was a unique situation. Had a very high concentration of really wealthy tech startup investors. And, you know, by way of reference, Chandra, Chandra, the typical SVB depositor had a balance of about $4 million, whereas the average American has a balance of about forty to 50000 And that's mm. important because, you know, the FDIC insures deposits up to 250000 So the average American is covered, is safe. You know, and then if you think, you know, these are tech investors, the tech industry, you know, had a boom and a bust uh, to some extent. And, you know, those businesses that weren't doing quite as well suddenly had cash flow problems. So they started to go to SVB to take out money in order to make payroll and such. Now, in terms of the macroeconomic picture, in order to tamp out inflation, which we're all very familiar with, the Federal Reserve um, had gone from virtually zero interest rates to about four and a half, uh, almost 5% in a very short period of time. Mm. So why does this matter? Because banks like SVB, the investments that they have to make that I just talked about, uh, you know, often they do investments like uh, T-bills and bonds in U.S. treasuries. Now, a year or two years ago, uh, you know, the yield on those was very low, right, because interest rates were so low. Um, meaning that they're worthless today because some of these wealthy SVB investors were like, well, I'm only getting 1% at SVB in my money market account or whatever. Why don't I take my millions out, very wealthy people, and why don't I turn around and invest it in some treasuries? Mm. So that was another reason that a lot of money came out of SVB. Well, and and you know that's that 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 in and of itself created a ve- a very unique situation. Plus, a lot of these these venture capitalists know each other, so once the liquidity problems at SVB started to become more apparent, um, you know, word sp- spread very quickly, and of course, social media um, well, made that worse. So have- it's very unique. Well, I want to jump in because I want to ask the question that everyone wants to know. So, if I have less than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the bank. Even if my bank collapses, it won't really affect me, or do I just take my money to another bank? <laughs> you are you are covered, and you know because of the you know dynamic that I just explained to you, uh, the Federal Reserve and you know the Biden administration know that if all of a sudden everyone started to take their money out of the bank, the the financial system would collapse. And that's why they have this insurance in the first place. So unless you're, you know, a millionaire, Chandra, regrettably, I am not. Um, <laughs> you know, people like you, people like you and I, we're pretty safe. Uh, and, yeah, we might and, be know, doing something else right now, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> good point. Good point. But uh, I do have to ask, so do we have enough information publicly to be able to tell if banks here in Colorado are facing similar risk as the banks that have failed? Yeah. So, you know, even though there was, you know, supposedly some mismanagement at SVB and, you know, even though they had, you know, a unique situation with a lot of wealthy investors and, you know, tech in particular, you know, there is still 
um, even though I say it's a unique situation, there is still, you know, reason to look at the banking industry as a whole with more scrutiny. And even Sheila Bear, who is the former FDIC uh, chairperson, uh, even she has said all banks, not just regional banks, but all banks should undergo, undergo stress tests right now because of the, ch- the rapid, rapid change in interest mm. rates. It, it actually, you know, is making a, a, a lot of banks step back and go, hold on, if 20 Andy Dufresne's, you know, for those of you who like uh, Shawshank Redemption, walked into the bank and tried to take out all of their millions at once, would we be okay? And that's a good question to ask. Speaking, so, speaking of questions, I want to ask, what's an example of a question I should ask my bank if I want to know more about how stable their footing is right now? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And honestly, if I had my money in a regional bank, I would I would be looking at a couple things. I would be looking at the annual reports, which you can get online, uh, and and look at you know what were the level of deposits two years ago, a year ago, and then you know go to your bank. And you know a teller's probably not going to be able to answer this, but maybe the person you know who you went to to ask for a loan to buy a car or something, you know one of the the uh, managers or one of the wealth uh, advisors, and and ask the question. You know how mu- how much money has been taken out of your bank uh, recently? Uh, you know what do you, what is your liquidity ratio? In other words, what proportion of your total capital, your total assets, do you have as cash on hand or cash that you can get in hand within a very short period of time. Tatiana, thanks for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure. Tatiana Bailey is an economist who runs data-driven economic strategies in Colorado Springs. When we come back, one challenge that people experiencing homelessness often face daily is finding a safe place to sleep. One program is helping address that problem for people living out of their cars, and it provides critical resources, too. How it's making a difference in the face of growing demand. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. I hope that you find Terra Firma a place where you're not being pulled away, but pulled to a few minutes to connect to a story, to a landscape, and to yourself. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. Many people experiencing homelessness end up sleeping in their cars, but finding a safe place to park can be super challenging or virtually impossible. Well, one new program is helping to change that. The number of safe places to park overnight along the Front Range has doubled in the past year, thanks to the efforts of the Colorado Safe Parking Initiative. The program has been working to fill the void as many Coloradans increasingly find themselves unable to afford rent. Sometimes getting back on your feet can begin in the simplest of ways. My name is Patty Robertson. I live in Denver, Colorado. I've lived here all my life. I'm a native and... Until about five years ago, I've always had a place to live. Then we fell on hard times and found ourselves having to live in our car for the first time in 60 years. I can honestly say with 100% certainty, safe parking is the sole reason we survived being homeless. It saved our lives. 
We did a call out for feedback on the program, and Patty Robertson, who you just heard, is just one of the people who contacted us to share her experience. The Colorado Safe Parking Initiative launched three years ago this month. I recently headed out to a parking lot in Commerce City on an extremely cold morning recently to learn more. I'm standing here with Terrell Curtis, Executive Director of the Colorado Safe Parking Initiative. Thank you for being here, Terrell. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity to share our work. So tell us about the initiative. So the Colorado Safe Parking Initiative has been up and running since about March of 2020. Our two founders are women who have lived homeless experience and saw in their own communities, like we all often do, people who were staying in their cars and clearly were unhoused. And for many, this absolutely was not their choice. And so they started rallying, you know, community members, those in the field who could help establish some kind of program and also promote some advocacy to make this a legal option. So what we do is advocate for and secure private parking lots that will permit people who are sheltering in their vehicles to park overnight while they're experiencing homelessness. You describe yourselves as a grassroots nonprofit organization working to create a statewide network of safe legal parking locations for individuals and families, as you've mentioned, sheltering in vehicles. And the number of lots has recently increased. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we started 2022 with five lots across the metro area. We are now up to 13. So we are operating in all the metro counties except for Douglas from Golden out to Aurora, from here in Commerce City, down to Lakewood, really supporting folks who are, you know, looking for stability. Um, And this is kind of that first step by staying here in a legal parking lot. They know they won't be uh, shaken awake several times a night and told to move on. They know they won't be shaken awake a few times a night by people looking to harass them or worse. So, you know, as far as the advocacy part goes, we have worked with jurisdictions on changing local ordinance to make this a legal option. Across the country, there are no legal ways for someone to sleep overnight in their car, even often on private property, for any extended period of time. So, in fact, just last May, we worked with a couple churches in Lakewood and the Lakewood City Council to update their ordinance for at least a pilot project that allows safe parking in Lakewood. Um, And so far, so good. Lakewood actually is our largest area of lots. We have four lots in Lakewood, and some of them include families with dependent children. So uh, we're busy, and and that advocacy piece just continues. In fact, we're working with the city of Denver right now to codify the emergency zoning ordinance that allowed programs like this, as well as the tiny home villages, to operate. About how many households are you all serving regularly overnight? Overnight, it's about 140 households at any given time. Um, You know, it wavers a little bit, but not much, because we hear from way more people than we can accommodate right now. So there's a lot of folks out there staying in their vehicles who really want support to get back into housing, who really need that access to safety. 
Well, you mentioned the metro area. Are there any plans to expand statewide or in certain other communities in Colorado? Because we are grassroots and growing very quickly, I actually just joined the organization as the first ED back in May, uh, joining one other full-time employee. Um, so, So we're working real hard to make sure that what we're doing is really exemplifying the very best practices and making sure that all our systems are in place so that we don't have to recreate the wheel every night internally or out here in the field with our folks. That being said, so for right now, no plans for CSPI to expand statewide. That being said, we have conversations almost on a weekly basis with communities across the state. I've spoken with folks in Durango twice. Uh, we're providing some technical assistance to Colorado Springs and Larimer County. I have a phone call in the books with Mesa County. Mm. So there are so many communities out there who are recognizing that need um, with their own citizens and see it as an opportunity. You know, we're using existing resources that mm. otherwise mostly just kind of sit here. This particular lot that we're in uh, is part of a property owned by the Urban Land Conservancy. We have another lot in Aurora mm. on their property. Urban Land Conservancy is a steward of real estate. Um, so they secure real estate and hold it for public good. Uh, often it's housing, it's programs like this uh, while they develop that property. You mentioned that this started in 2020. And of course, that is the year of the launch of the COVID-19 pandemic. How would you say that has affected the number of unhoused people here in Colorado? Oh my gosh. You know, you hear about it all the time whenever you're talking about poverty and homelessness. It absolutely demonstrated that there was a need because there's so many people who are tenuously housed. It literally is that paycheck to paycheck Mm. and you know you need new tires and that's it it's either tires or the rent Um, about 30 percent of the folks we serve are on a fixed income so they're folks who are over 55 often or have a disability and or have a disability so if their rent goes up like so many rents have lately that's it they don't have any more to spare and so they hold on to that last asset in their vehicle and and use it as a place to shelter with as much of their belongings as they can with their pet. Um, A lot of the folks that we serve have companion animals. And, you know, for those of us who have animals, that is a heartbreaking choice to make. Um, So meaning if they could not, if there was a place that they could stay, but they're not willing to except pets, then that person has to make that choice. So there's almost no shelters across Metro Denver that I can think of offhand that accept companion animals. Mm. Um, So that is a big need. We also are sheltering folks who are couples without dependent children. If you're a heterosexual couple, there literally is no shelter that's available for you if you don't have kids. And if you could imagine... Here you have your lifelong partner that you lean on for everything, uh, and you're faced with this choice of, you know, one of you going into shelter. I've talked to many women in my previous work who wanted shelter in one of the women's shelters, and their husband was going to stay out in their car or camp, Mm. Um, but he didn't want 
his wife, who's a little more vulnerable, to stay outside as well. And for I understand, a lot of the people here are working, and I think uh, a lot of people have this belief that those who are unhoused don't work. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Almost half the people who come to us come to us already employed. Um, it just isn't enough to afford a place to live like so many of us know right now. Um, and that's true across the country and certainly across Metro Denver with our unhoused population. About 40% of those folks are working. Um, you know, it's, it's the gig economy, it's temporary work, and those kinds of things that, and regular jobs. Maybe it's shift work and you're working the swing shift. That also makes safe parking, our program, more accessible for folks because often the shelters... If you're staying in a shelter, sometimes there's a curfew. You can't come in after a certain time of night. Maybe you've got to be at work at 4 in the morning, and that may be a challenge if you're in a shelter. So here, people have the autonomy to meet their other needs. Terrell Curtis is executive director of the Colorado Safe Parking Initiative. We spoke on an extremely cold morning in a Commerce City parking lot where people can can sleep safely in their cars overnight without fear of harassment. When we come back, we'll hear from a man who now manages one of the lots that he and his wife used at one point to get back on their feet. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andy Kenny from the CPR Newsroom. The state legislature is in session, and that means so is the CPR politics podcast, Purplish, everywhere you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. Three years ago this month, two women who had experienced homelessness created a program to give people a safe place to sleep in their cars. It's been a lifesaver and a safety net for people like Matthew Lash. I uh, finally found the Safe Parking Initiative and applied, and they let me in here, which was a huge step up from constantly being harassed and ran off while living out of a vehicle. And it's great to see that there's people that actually care, people that haven't forgotten that homeless people are people too. I'm not going to say that life isn't hard right now, there's a massive problem here that needs looking at. All I know is I probably wouldn't still be alive if it was for the Safe Parking Initiative. The Colorado Safe Parking Initiative works with parking lot owners to provide a safe haven for people who live out of their cars to sleep overnight. I met one of the lot managers recently on an extremely cold morning in Commerce City. My name is Michael, and I'm the lot operator at this location for Safe Parking. And basically my job is when somebody is new to the site, we make sure that they fill out all their information and uh, that uh, their ID and vehicle matches what we have on their application. (laughs) And uh, we give them a welcome kit, which has a first aid kit, socks, hand warmers, hygiene, mask, you know, just something to help them get started. And that we go over the safety rules of the lot and, uh, explain to them what time they're allowed to show up, what time they need to leave by in the morning. And that we basically just give them a place to where they can feel safe and have a good night's sleep. I know you all try to protect the locations to keep them safe, but 
without giving away any specifics, can you kind of just describe where you and I are standing right now and for someone who's well, not... Yes, we're in a very safe location. We're close to government building and also to uh, the city health officials. Uh, law enforcement isn't far from here either. Uh, it's a nice clean space. The parking lot is well paved and taken care of. And the neighborhood surrounding it is aware of who is here and what's going on, and they're in support of it. And uh, so that helps a lot. And uh, definitely there is safety in numbers. So when somebody is homeless in a car and has experienced the dangers of it, once they come here, they feel safe because they're amongst other people experiencing the same things that they are in life. Yeah, so we're standing here. This is a weekday morning, and it's very chilly. Uh, even Michael here has on a hat and a, like two jackets and got his hands in his pockets. So it's it's pretty cold. And that's also part of what you're trying to do is to keep people out of the elements and make sure that if they are going to be living in their cars, that they have um, some safety. Yes. And also there uh, we help uh, direct them to other programs that they can apply for that uh, like when it snows and stuff, there are programs that help them get motel vouchers, things like that. And uh, there are counselors and stuff that they're welcome to uh, interact with. You know, we try not to force anything onto somebody, but we also want them to be aware of all the help that is out there for them. And this is one of the newer lots in Commerce City, and the focus, I understand, is families. Yes. So tell us, Michael, about some of the people you serve here? Well, it, it's a wide range of people, you know. Uh, we do have a family that's staying here right now. We have a couple of single gentlemen that are here right now. And so it, it ranges very much. Uh, and uh, the reason people become homeless ranges very much. You know, not everyone ends up in this situation for the same reason. And so, you know, you try not to put everybody under one umbrella. You have to understand what they're going through. And uh, some people are very shy. Some are very outspoken, which is okay, you know. Basically, the biggest part is is to make sure that they know that they have a support system, you know, people who want to help them. Kind of describe for us the schedule. So you come at a certain time, you leave yes, at a certain time. At this particular lot, now every lot is a little bit different for its circumstances. At this particular lot, everyone's allowed to show up at 6 p.m. at night. At 10 p.m. at night is what we call quiet time from 10 mm -hmm. to 5. There's no leaving, going back and forth, no radios, you know, nothing like that. And by 7.30 in the morning, everyone needs to be cleaned up around their vehicle and leave the lot. And uh, most people stay here on a nightly basis, but uh, the rule is, at least four nights a week if you want to reserve your spot. Uh, if there is something that comes up, you know, they just notify me or someone else with Colorado Safe Parking Initiative and let them know how what's going on. And we try and work with everybody so that they can keep a spot and stay, you know, where they want to be. Also, you provide, you know, we're standing right here near, uh, you know, what they call a porta potty. Yes. But that also gives people access to youth facilities. And you'd be surprised how important that is to a homeless person, uh, especially after the COVID and everything. 
public bathrooms are not readily accessible anymore. So to be able to have a place, and, and it's big enough, we have a small wash station in, inside of it to where they can wash up and everything. Uh, it's big enough to where you can change your clothes if you need to change real quickly. And uh, everyone that I've dealt with so far has been very, very polite about the time that they use it, how long they're in there cleaning it up. Uh, and that's one thing that is uh, very much a joy to watch is how much everyone tries to help keep everything picked up and clean at this particular site. Uh, uh, makes my job very easy in the mornings, you know, and uh, uh, we've had no complaints that I'm aware of uh, anyone leaving any trash. It's uh, very, been a very nice experience to know that all these people care and want to help each other. And what responses have you gotten in terms of feeling shared from those you serve in terms of what this has meant for them to just have access to a place like this? Oh, they just enjoy the safety. And uh, just, uh, and again, they feel like they're part of a community, you know, which uh, helps when you feel like you're an outcast from society for a while to know that you're accepted somewhere, that you're not the only one experiencing that kind of problem. You yourself say you have used these services. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal experience? Yes, my wife and I. Uh, it, it was a rough start when we became homeless, and uh, we weren't getting a whole lot of help. And then we were referred to some people, and uh, they've helped us, well, for one, have a place to stay. They've helped us a little bit with some vehicle maintenance that we needed. Uh, you know, and it differs from person to person what's available. I've spoken with your executive director, and um, she talked about, you know, this is supposed to be about safety, but also, as you mentioned, access to resources yes. that can help people get out of the situation and transition out. Uh, have you heard any success stories? Recently, a family that was staying here, is uh, now received their Section 8 housing. They got it a little quicker because of their situation. Mm. Because, you know, there's a line for everything. Uh, and, but uh, it worked out to where they were able, uh, through this program and another program, that uh, when, uh, when everyone's filling out their paperwork, we uh, highlight some other things mm. that they can apply for and where they can receive help. And that's how they can move on into better housing, better facilities, uh, get different kind of help that they need. You know, some people it's medical maybe that they need. Some people it might be automotive. Some people it might be clothing. Uh, you know, it varies very much on what one person might need. Uh, I myself know that they've gotten help with glasses, uh, which uh, is, you know, some people take for granted. But... When you need glasses and yours are all broke up and everything, you know, just be able to get a pair of glasses is a fantastic thing. And also through a lot of these people that you can be referred to is also, you know, mental health issues, just people you can talk to if you need to. Uh, it's a wide range of help that's out there and people who want to reach out but a lot of people on the street don't even know that they're there sometimes. So, you know, try, being the go-between is a nice thing. So how does it make you feel when you hear 
the success stories or people saying, hey, because of this location, I was able to receive the information that I needed? Well, it's very satisfying, and I'm on both sides of that story because we were down and out, and we're still not where we'd like to be, but uh, we've we're in a better spot in life. So it's very satisfying when you see it work for somebody else too. And what about your own situation? Is that something you're working on? Oh yes, definitely. And uh, we're on a lot of lists for Section 8 housing. I recently uh, became a senior citizen, so that moves us into a different list, uh, you know, availabilities on Section 8 and stuff. So, uh, and uh, thanks to some of the counselors and people that we've been working with, uh, we've left no stone unturned, if you understand what I mean. At this point, there was uh, lists and stuff that we didn't even know about that they got us on to and aware of. And uh, so there, there is a lot of help out there if people want to seek it. There are a lot of misconceptions about the unhoused community. And um, you work closely with this. It's been a part of your experience. And you are also working here on site to help others. What is it that you want people to know? If you do want help, if you do want to change your situation, there is help. It's just a matter of reaching out a little bit and accepting it. Uh, a lot of homeless people have gotten to be a little closed-minded because of the way they've been treated by society. Uh, and so they don't really realize that there are a whole lot of people who don't want to treat them that way, who want to help them have a better life. And again, it's if they choose and want to. And there are a lot of people who do want to. What about those who have not experienced being homeless? What do you want them to know about this community that they may not know or misunderstand? Well, uh, I hate to put it this way, but the truth is, is it could happen to anybody at any time. Sometimes you think you've got the most safe situation in life, and tomorrow life can turn differently. So, uh, you know, it might be good maybe sometime if someone has maybe an extra couple hours or something just to volunteer somewhere, even at a food bank or uh, just anywhere uh, at a park or something, you know, and just to maybe touch some of the other lives and see what it's like for them and see how much it touches their life, too, to uh, reach out and help. Any final words on the Colorado Safe Parking Initiative? Uh, very, very, very kind people, very open-minded, very big heart. I didn't even know they existed till a couple of months ago. Basically back in uh, September is when I found out about them. And uh, they just really care about trying to make a difference in the community, giving not only homeless people a safe place, to be at, but also give a community a chance to, you know, know, well, if they give them a place to stay, the community knows what, that, that they're homeless and that they're being managed well and that they're safe too. So, you know, it makes everybody in the area feel better. Michael, thank you so much for sharing. You bet. The Colorado Safe Parking Initiative was launched three years ago this month. In the past year, it's expanded to every metro Denver County except for Douglas and is working to create resources with other communities across Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 
Pikes Peak once bore the name of the first non-native to reach its summit, Edwin James, who called the landscape a region of astonishing beauty. James traveled west in 1820 with the first major expedition since Lewis and Clark. At 22, he was already an observant botanist, describing hundreds of plants previously unknown to Western science, including the Colorado Columbine. On that expedition, James also cared for dogs and horses, while others ignored them. He witnessed native people driven from their lands and settlers indiscriminately killing bison. Years later, he criticized the greed of the fur trade, translated the New Testament into Ojibwe, and turned his Iowa farmhouse into a stop on the Underground Railroad. Pikes Peak is no longer named after Edwin James, but his name does live on in the scientific names of 24 plant species, a wilderness area spanning three Colorado counties, and a 13er on the Continental Divide, James Peak. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble and Company. Avalanches have killed nine people in Colorado so far this winter, more than in any other state. Avalanche transceivers help locate people under the snow and can mean the difference between life and death. But it's not just important to wear them, you also have to know how to use them properly. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg explains. Scott Benge was stuck in a nightmare. It was one he had pictured many times, but living it was far worse than he had ever imagined. While backcountry skiing outside the tiny town of Ophir earlier this winter, he was carried away by an avalanche. I was probably about five feet deep, fully buried, and, you know, thousands of pounds of snow on top of me. I couldn't move a finger. I mean, I couldn't move anything. Snow packed down his windpipe. I really felt that I was not going to make it, that I was going to die right there. But he knew he had to stay calm. Not scream or, you know, get my heart rate up or anything like that, because at that time it was all just relying on my partners and their abilities to save my life at that point. And he was wearing a tool that could help them save him, an avalanche transceiver, which was transmitting his location if only someone could get close enough to pick it up on their transceiver. All Benj could do was hope. Yeah, I probably had 20 to 30 seconds to think about things. And then passed out. I have a signal. 11. Preparing for a moment like that is what's brought some friends to a mountainside about five hours northeast near Minturn. The group, mostly from the Front Range, is practicing using their transceivers to find a transceiver buried deep in snow. 1.1. And when they get close, they use long poles to hone in on the exact location. That felt like it, yeah. Yep, got it. Then start digging. I have them. Get their airway. Until they uncover the transceiver, often called a beacon attached to a piece of wood. Beacon probe shovel. Nolan Hurd, who volunteers with a backcountry nonprofit, says these three pieces of equipment are becoming more and more common for backcountry users. But most people I've interacted with don't practice. They've, they may have bought a beacon shovel and probe and it's never left their backpack. And that's why this training park, run by the White River National Forest, exists. Alex Blanchard says their group has been running beacon safety drills for years, long before the park opened in 2020. But it was a lot harder logistically to, like, find three, four, five people to go kind of set up a scenario where here we can just walk up, 
flip on a switch. You can practice by yourself. You can practice with friends. You have a lot more options now. Right off Interstate 70, the park is a steep climb from a ranger station, but otherwise has few barriers to visit. It's open 24 hours a day, no fees or registration. A control panel allows you to turn on up to eight buried transceivers, so you can practice over and over. As Cassidy Grady explores the backcountry, she's grateful to have that kind of repetition under her belt. There's a much bigger responsibility here for the skier to know what they're doing. Um, in resort, you have ski patrol, and that is such a great safety measure um, and a necessary one for resort skiing. But in backcountry skiing, search and rescue could be hours away. You have to be able to have these skills now, you know, in the, in the moment, um, to rescue your friend if it comes to that. It's like your buddies are your ski patrol. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And you want to trust your ski patrol. So you want to trust your friends that they know how to find you and you know how to find them. And Alex Blanchard says you might think the people who die in avalanches are mostly novices. But it ends up being a lot of people with experience. Maybe because they have the confidence to explore more remote places, just like he and his friends do. He estimates they spend about 50 days a season in the backcountry. We are the definition of, like, who's usually getting caught in these. So every winter, they make sure to practice their beacon techniques. Ethan Green, director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, says some evidence shows that wearing a transceiver gives you a better than 50% chance of surviving an avalanche burial. But it can only help if the people around you are also wearing them and comfortable using them. And we have had some accidents this year and in previous years where somebody has struggled to uh, use this rescue device uh, under stress and not been able to perform uh, an adequate rescue. Since the start of the pandemic, the number of backcountry users has soared. Just two winters ago, 12 people died in Colorado avalanches, tying a modern-day state record. Green thinks safety awareness campaigns by his agency and others have more people talking about learning their safety equipment and taking avalanche courses. Those are really important things to do, but if you only have so many weekends off in a winter, sometimes it's hard to dedicate one to that education program. These avalanche transceiver training parks give people additional chances to practice vital skills. Green says they've actually been around for a long time, but we're often at ski resorts. The new trend is to create free ones, open to the public. Green welcomes the change, but says these devices are only one part of avalanche safety. The most important tool you have is the one between your ears, and uh, everything else is important to have. Uh, but but kind of a backup plan. And he says the best way to survive an avalanche is to never get into one. That means checking the avalanche forecast and avoiding areas that are dangerous. When Scott Bench, from the beginning of the story, was caught, he was in terrain he was not fully familiar with. He was buried unconscious for about 15 minutes until he was extracted by his friend Kane Scheidegger and others. And he took this really kind of deep, gurgly, labored breath. As Benj came to, he remembers what he felt. Guilt and embarrassment, you know, that I made a decision that led to this. He's grateful for the quick actions of those around him 
and for the device that allowed him to be found in a sea of snow, stretching hundreds of feet. There's no doubt in my mind that I wouldn't be here if I wasn't wearing a beacon, if Kane wasn't wearing a beacon, if, if, if Kane didn't know how to utilize a beacon and, and perform a beacon search. And so when next ski season rolls around, Bench and his friends will make sure to practice with their beacons, probes, and shovels, just as they have for years. I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Colorado is home to a lot of number one ranked athletes, from freestyle snowboarding to mountain climbing. But how about a sport that doesn't involve mountains or even the outdoors? I'm talking about competitive pinball. Well, Colorado has that too. Escher Lefkoff was just 13 years old when he became the number one pinball player in the world. He held the spot for just a few months, but now, years later, he's back on top. CPR's Matt Bloom met with the pinball champion to discuss his journey to reclaiming the throne and the father-son dynasty that started it all. 15 seconds again. Multiply play field, double play field. It's the World Pinball Championships in California. Escher Lefkoff is 19, and he looks exactly like you'd expect. A blue hoodie, glasses, side-swiped bangs. Big points here. He's already at 790. He furiously plays a Flash Gordon-themed pinball machine, one he's had trouble with in the past. His father, Adam, watches with nervous pride. And then... He got it! He got it! The moment I saw my score pass 1.5 million, that's when I turned around and gave my dad a hug. It was more than a hug. He jumped into my arms. (laughs) Unbelievable! Escher Lefkoff! 2023 World Pinball Champion by 6,000 points. You can't get any closer than that. On this game, you control everything that happens. And if you make a decision that ends with you draining, then that's on you. So how did a kid from Longmont rise to world domination at such a young age? I met up with him at his family's home in Longmont. Well, actually, we met inside a barn on his family's farm, a pinball barn. It's filled with dozens of bright, flashing machines and a hallway of trophies from competitions he and his dad have competed in together. And they have won a lot. You can actually see we have over 200 tournaments played against each other. I'm up currently, I think, 109 to 107 or something. We were tied. I was always green because I I could beat three-year-old Escher and five-year-old Escher with one arm tied behind my back. But 16-year-old Escher and 19-year-old Escher has been kicking my butt for the last few years. Yeah, when I was about 13 is when it swapped to us being about even, and then 16 was when I started... Yeah, there's a serious inflection point. As soon as Escher was old enough to walk, Adam used to bring him along with him to a local arcade called Lions Classic Pinball. And it became a regular, every weekend, Escher and I would go to Lions and play pinball. He really enjoyed playing it from the earliest of age. Escher would stand on a wooden stool between his dad and the machine so he could watch him play. And when he saw a trick he wanted to learn, they would come home and practice it together. I remember... There was this one skill called drop catching, which is very difficult but very useful. And we went on Indiana Jones when I was like nine years old. 
in our basement and he took the glass off and we sat there for about 20 minutes just practicing over and over and over again. And then three weeks later, I was great at it. After a while, they realized Escher was pretty good. Adam says Escher's biggest strength was memorizing pinball machine maps. Imagine if you played baseball and every single ballpark was completely different. This ballpark has a fence that's only 200 feet in one direction. And oh, by the way, third base happens to actually be hidden. And the only way to find third base is to run the second base while hopping on one leg. Those are the kinds of rules that we have to learn for all these different games. Escher shows me his favorite map, a Jurassic Park themed game. This game is really cool because on the center of the playfield, you actually have a map of the Nublar Islands. And as you progress through the game, you work through the map and you have to rescue the dinosaurs as you go to the visitor center. And if you complete everything in the game, you have to escape Nublar. You might be thinking, wait a second, there's a storyline here? I thought pinball was just hit the ball as much as you can before it drains down the middle. Nope. Everything you need to go is operational. Escher says every game has a story. And the first rule of winning means playing along. You got to know what you're doing next. And if your plan runs out, then that's usually a good sign. Have an end goal. Escher has played this machine hundreds of times. In fact, he's played basically every pinball game ever made. And he's played in so many tournaments that he eventually started a career in pro pinball, which, yes, has an official association with leagues and tournaments all around the world. And he's done really well. He obliterates the competition and arguably the competition today is 10 times harder than it was 15 years ago simply because of the number of people who are playing. Escher has held on to his number one world ranking for eight months now and the question is how long can he go? The record is 126 months. For me the thing that I get the most satisfaction in life is improving at things. It doesn't matter as long as I'm improving at something that's what I get satisfaction from and in my mind that's I guess, winning at life. And it's that love of the game that keeps Escher and Adam going, aside from the competition. You have this ball in play. No matter what you do, that ball is going to drain. You cannot play forever. We are going to die. That is just a fact of life. So it really depends on what you do with the ball, with your opportunities. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, that's how I grew up learning pinball, is in this positive mindset of it's not luck. If I want to be better, I got to practice and I got to be better. They both also just have a lot of fun playing. My biggest advantage, I guess, growing up was having a dad that was already good. <laughs> I always say it is the greatest blessing in my life is being able to share a hobby with my teenage son. The two hope to compete, talk shop, and crush the competition like they have for years now. Side by side, playing the game they love most. Whatever, whatever pinball is, yeah. It's life. Pinball so, is life. <laughs> pinball is life, they both agree, and they're in it together. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team who keeps the ball moving. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.